I can't imagine Haringey Council stumping up $850 million for the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Owen Connolly, ready to take you through another weekly wrap of news from in and around the sports industry. Very happy to welcome back once again Tom Basson, Sports Pro Digital Editor. Hi, Owen. Also delighted to have back with us again Sports Pro Media and Technology Editor Steve McCaskill. Hello, Steve. Hi, Owen. We're going to have another installment of Places You've Been, Steve McCaskill. How are you recovering from uh, your latest trip? Yeah, uh, not too bad today. Bit bit challenging going into the office yesterday. Um, but it's all, all doing my part for sustainability while I'm racking up the air miles. <laughs> Steve has uh, just been in San Francisco with CellGP and there's a couple of news lines coming out of that meeting that we will uh, we'll, we'll hear about. We've got some bits on the Buffalo Bills Stadium and, and some other uh, intriguing rumours or reports around the NFL and we'll be going under the radar a bit later too. So yeah, Steve, let's let's start with your your trip to California out with Cell GP. Uh, conclusion of their second season. Yeah, so it was the the grand final in San Francisco. Um, it's the, the the final round of races, coupled with it with another race to determine the overall winner. Which, uh, if anyone doesn't want to know the result, let's, you know, turn off your radio now. But it was uh, Australia. Um, but it's the the culmination of a sustainable racing series. There's a uh, a lot of emphasis put on uh, the environment and the impact of sports on uh, the environment and and, and, and nature, um, but it's they try to wrap it around with something that's entertaining and is going to be something that can that can grow the sport of sailing. So, yeah, twin ambitions to make something commercial for sailing while also perhaps creating a framework for other sports to follow. Mm. There were a, a few announcements that came out on that trip. The thing that kind of broke out of of the bubble was uh, something about a a franchise being opened up to a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO. It's a kind of blockchain enabled buy-in collective thing as far as I can ascertain, but let's, let's have a slightly more professional definition of a DAO from you now, Steve. What, what is a DAO? Well, we'll definitely call it a DAO because I don't want to say DAO every four lines. A DAO is essentially a blockchain-powered organization. You, everyone involved has a, a share in, in, in the DAO. And rather having than having a centralized figurehead, the organization is run depending on a series of rules. And these rules are governed by smart contracts, which are on the blockchain. So it's kind of the same as a, principles as a cryptocurrency or, or an NFT. The idea is... Uh, distributed ledger these things can't be altered there's a record everywhere and the the idea is that this is more democratic because you're running an organization to a set of principles there's genuine input from everyone involved it's not at the whims of an individual like a a chief executive officer or a a group of shareholders so they've been tested out in other other industries there's been uh not too many in sport yet but there's there's been a couple of interesting projects recently so cell gp is working with a company called near and they're going to work together to see how a DAO could work within the framework of Sale GP. And the intention is to perhaps put one of the franchises, because Sale GP is a franchise-based series, out to a DAO who could then determine who would be, you know, the, the commercial aspects, the athlete lineup, 
pretty much anything they wanted. It would be dependent on who's participating in the DAO and the smart contracts and the, the rules they decide on. Stay within the confines of, of CellGP for the moment. What What's the ambition here? What kind of timeline have they put in place for this venture? It could be brought in in time for season four, which would be 2023, I believe. So that's that's the the earliest it could, it could happen. Uh, they've not given away too much as yet. They are still working on how it would be introduced, how it would impact the rest of the series, and come up with some guidelines before they put it out for for tender. It's an interesting one because obviously blockchain enabled stuff, Web three stuff is rampant in in sport, primarily through NFTs. And we saw some more projects launched this week. We've just seen as we were about to record. Uh, Major League Soccer doing a deal with So Rare for its NFT rights, and we've seen Liverpool have launched a project this week. DAOs have kind of been hovering on the edge. We've seen a couple of organisations say they'd be interested in buying, you know, lower league football clubs in England, for example. It, it's something that, you know, coming at it from a bit more of a layman's perspective, feels like it needs some more explanation as to why it needs to exist in the way that it does, how it differs from a kind of uh, a collective or a cooperative that's not uh, enabled by the blockchain and, and smart contracts, but by kind of, you know, contracts agreed between people. The other thing that it's become a little bit notorious for is over-promising, shall we say, in um, in some other, some other parts of business and entertainment. I mean, there was a now slightly infamous project involving the purchase of a set of rights to Dune, which actually turned out to be an early edition of a, a book detailing some artwork um, but it was just just the book and they overpaid by a couple of million dollars what, what what are some of the expectations around what this can achieve what's some of the potential in this concept if it's executed effectively well i think the important thing using that that dune example is you need to actually own what you are you're buying um so i mean Look, obviously, it's 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 like any technology. It's it's great in principle. It depends how it's how it's executed. the The promise of a DAO in a sporting context is that, as a fan, you could have some genuine input. You're not reliant on again a, a board, shareholders, executives. You can, if you have this access to to a, to a platform that can help you influence these decisions, you can. Have a real say. I spoke to the the, the chief executive of, of CLGP, Russell Coots, who explained their vision and, and and how they think it could be. What if a member of the DAO could could talk to the athletes on on the boat? They might not go for that for obvious reasons. But <laughs> ships are not a democracy in, in many many cases, and you need to have some sort of integrity of the, the sporting competition. So I think it, it, it's a slightly u- u- utopian vision in, in, in many ways, and it is about getting the technology right and the processes right. And there's an example, there was a group that tried to buy a football club and make it democratic. It was called My Football Club, and they bought Ebsfleet United. And the promise was they would have them because of transfers and selection and, and other elements of the club. But ultimately, it, it didn't work out for a variety of reasons. The initial promise of the vision wasn't wasn't delivered not not maliciously it just didn't really didn't really work out um although it did have the first ever fan voted transfer so that's where blockchain would come in obviously this this is an idea that's been around for a while but if you have these smart contracts that are stored across multiple systems so they can't be altered they have to be uh, adhered to and acted upon autonomously then you can have that 
utopian vision of a of a, of a fan or a ordinary people own, owning a sports team or organization but it's about getting the technology and the processes right and i think sales gp are going to make sure that that those are in place before they, they go through with this yeah absolutely it does strike me as, as as being a positive thing in any case that it's being operated under the aegis of sales gp it's not someone coming in taking over say a lower league football team or you know an independent but community rooted organization and learning through failure which would be a, a bit of a shame in that context tom did you have any reactions to this news yeah i was um, taken by the sort of claims from both parties really that this could be a environmentally or at least carbon neutral um partnership i mean I, I, it's one of sale gp's kind of main usps is that sustainability angle um and to to my knowledge uh Blockchain is not a particularly sustainable or at least carbon friendly uh, technology in its current guise. Um, Steve, I saw in your report for this that you said it was uh, that, that Near claims to be carbon neutral at least. But I mean, I think I think I read somewhere that Ethereum, the main blockchain platform that quite a lot of these th- these transactions NFT transactions are done on, takes about I don't know 152 kilowatt hours to mint a new NFT, which is a very large amount. I mean, that's enough to power a household for a few days i think by my very poor knowledge of um uh, i guess is it engineering or am i talking about physics either way that for, that probably shows you how much of a deficit gap a knowledge deficit gap i have in that area but steve perhaps you could tell me a little bit more about why uh, near is a bit more uh, a bit more environmentally friendly than some of its um competitors in the web3 space yeah so this was the first question i asked about it because we all know that 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 some blockchain technologies are, are really, you know, some blockchain applications can use the the same power as a, as a whole as a small country. So it, it's it's you know you've got when you've got Bitcoin mines competing against each other to validate transactions. So as I understand it, Near is different. Near uses a different protocol, and this just bear with me. Um, so whereas something like Bitcoin uses proof of work to validate transactions, Near uses something called proof of stake, which means they have to um, essentially prove before they validate the transaction they can do it. And this is much more energy efficient. And that's that's the difference. And then near as an organization obviously does the other the other uh, bits associated with being carbon neutral in terms of uh, you know I believe offs you know it's offsets but much like sale GP does. So that's that's the difference. It's 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 technical but there is there is some difference in how it operates compared to something like like ethereum or some you know or, or what powers powers bitcoin yeah i think uh proving the pudding when it comes to some of these claims but that definitely is one of the next hurdles that some of these um organizations can have to clear if they if they get any deeper into mainstream consumer tech and into uh certainly into these kind of partnerships in sport and it was notable as well that this was a claim that was made on behalf of Liverpool's NFT launch this week, that they were going with a a greener solution when it came to the blockchain hosting side of things. But from your perspective, is this an issue that arises from executions of the technology or is it an issue that is fundamental to the way that blockchain exchanges work? I think it's a bit of both. Um, Obviously, the, the, the protocols behind Bitcoin are not designed to be energy efficient but at the same time who could have thought there'd be all these bitcoin mines competing to create new ones so you have to get the processes right there are 
lots of people working on making blockchain technology more energy efficient because they want to find long-term use cases for it if 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 they do exist i'm sure i'm sure some do so again it it's 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 a combination of of, of the two and and what i will say is uh, that i don't think some a an organization like cell gp which has put sustainability as a fundamental pillar of its of its existence would be doing something unless it thought it was at least possible and that's a, that's a genuine imp- impression i i got from them and then that they um and again, that was lit- like I said, that was literally the first thing I asked was, you know, why would an organization like CellGP be getting involved in blockchain if, if it wasn't an energy efficient? And they explained to you why they chose to partner with NIA specifically. So I think if you can get the processes right, find an, an perhaps let's, we'll call them an, an ethical use case or a useful use case of blockchain, use a technology that is going to be as energy efficient as possible. That's kind of got to be the path forward for, for, for sport if it wants to be sustainable. Mm. As you said, CellGP positioning themselves as as an ethical and, and, and sustainable rights holder and promoter of events. What what were some of the other things that came out of, of their weekend out there in San Francisco? Well, CellGP, in addition to the main sailing competition, has something called the Impact League. And it's a uh, all eight teams uh, compete to try and uh, win this Impact League. And it's based on environmental considerations. And you're awarded points for various uh, f- for reducing impacts in the environment. This could be recycling. It could be using uh, reducing use of single single waste plastics, and they they're all assessed by an audit uh, by 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 the organisers. They have to report what they use, um, the, you know, the various practices. And the idea is that you are creating a competition between the teams. These are all competitive. Uh, athletes, not just on the water, but, but also off it. So it's all, instead of doing a, a stick with which to beat an organization by, I don't know, filing the written penalty points for breaching these regulations, it's it's almost a reward because they, they all want to win this and they all have what they call purpose partners. And the winning team in the Impact League gets to give their uh, their purpose partner a, a, a cash prize to to use towards their towards their cause. And on top of that, sustainability, that there is there is a commercial incentive to be viewed as a sustainable organization. Brands are going to want to get involved with you because it's it's a good thing to be associated with. So if you're winning this impact league, there then I don't know, it could it could be a uh, a bargaining chip in, in sponsorships. They might uh, a brand might choose to partner with you rather than one of your, one of your competitors. And everyone I spoke to and uh, was was saying that we, we do want to win this because it is, you know, we're all trying to be as as uh as sustainable as possible we all want to we're all, we're, we're all competitive and and a lot of the sailors do have a vested interest in environmental issues you know but they say that they're, you know, they're closer to nature because the very you know nature of their sport they're, they're on the water they're able to see various elements of climate change at work so that was the big sustainability message from from the weekend yeah as you say um, we're seeing it in action in the fact that you know you have an organization like near that is trying to show a greener execution of its uh, of its own product okay well let's uh let's let's come back to shore so to speak for the next bit of the podcast um big bit of news coming out of the u.s the buffalo bills tom securing funding for their new stadium it's something that they've been looking for 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 quite a while to kind of uh bring that franchise forward 
what are the details of that? I think once again, a, a, an indication of how differently some of the politics and funding around team infrastructure works in the US as opposed to in other places. Yeah, I can't imagine Haringey Council stumping up $850 million for the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. <laughs> Um, but that is what the state of New York has agreed to uh, hand to the Buffalo Bills. It's going to be on the same site as their current stadium at Orchard Park, but it's going to be a completely new stadium. I think I read that it's built across the road. As ever with these things, there's usually lots of land around those around those venues, which is used for overflow parking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think the local county, uh, Erie County, is going to provide about 250 million of that 850 million taxpayer total uh, and then the rest will be made up by the bills how generous and the nfl um i think the total cost at this stage is projected to be 1.4 billion so it's going to be a- another new stadium for the nfl which um has done a pretty good job really of refreshing its venues continuously over the last sort of 20 years or so uh it's it's hard to think of of sort of many now that are um kind of crumbling venues that their teams play in. I mean, I think probably the worst of which was the uh, the Oakland Raiders playing at the Oakland Coliseum, which now seems to be Major League Baseball's problem rather than uh, the NFL's. So um, big news for the Bills. We'll keep them in that in that state in Western New York for for another 30 years, I think. It doesn't uh, necessarily take a, a franchise off the table in terms of, uh, of a takeover um, in that period, but it does take uh, a franchise off the table in terms of moving to another part of the map, whether that's in the US um, or, or overseas in, in those decades. And I wonder if that will have a knock-on effect for the sale of the Denver Broncos, which is is coming up and, and you know, um, whether the Bills may be becoming less of a an easy target for, for potential investors now that they have this partnership in place will drive the value of the Broncos up because they become a rarer asset or whether the Bills actually become a more appealing target in the future because of uh, the fact that they do have this infrastructure in place. But what's been the reception? Because this always comes up, the structure of these stadium funding partnerships. What's been the reception as far as you can ascertain? to that outlay from the uh, local governments there. I mean they've they've very much tried to spin it as a good deal for for New York state. I think it was something they said that the bills are worth around um 27 million dollars uh, a year um which over the course of the 30 years in which they've agreed to be there would at least pay back a, a big big proportion of the money. I think for I think for sort of fans these kind of things are so they're so um normalized in in u.s sporting culture that it's probably like it's not even kind of too much of a um a big a big departure i guess from what was expected teams have always used the threat of leaving uh, that kind of brinkmanship to secure these kind of long-term deals with the state uh and it, it seems to me as if that in in this case uh new york was kind of happy to pay it i mean famously new york doesn't actually have an NFL team within the state itself with both of the New York Jets and Giants being based in New Jersey. For them to make sure that they retain at least one team within their state is actually probably quite important. I guess it is a little bit different from some of the more privately financed stadiums we've seen recently. I think SoFi had a little bit more private money in it than um, than this one will. But Allegiant, which was a, a big project to 
bring the the Raiders to Las Vegas uh, had some very heavy state backing. So I think I think on the ground it's probably a little bit more like business as usual. I mean, one of the things that this does as well, Steve, is is this the kind of generational arms race, so to speak, of stadium development in in the NFL continues apace. We saw what has been constructed out in SoFi Stadium. It got its big night at the Super Bowl earlier this year. Um, we perhaps won't get something quite at that end of things, although you never know, a few years further along the line. But the scale of investment is is not quite the same. But what it does do is it keeps that regeneration of, of NFL facilities going. And that kind of places pressure potentially on on other uh, other parts of the country, other teams, other, other states, other city authorities to, to keep everything uh, progressing. Yeah. I mean, for many years, I actually wondered whether anyone actually wanted a team in LA because it allowed team owners to put pressure on local authorities to to get them to to invest and to keep their their teams in in in, in their cities but i mean you look at the stadiums in in the US and how frequently they are updated it's it's completely different to what we have in 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 Europe where there was that, that you know the first real wave of of regeneration was in the early nineties. You know, uh, you know when we started seeing seeing new stadiums. So it's just a completely different different mindset. And uh, as as you know, Tom was saying before, a lot of these stadiums are very lucky in that they have huge parking lots next door, which means that they can they can often build build a new stadium and play in, play in the old one. So it remains to be seen who will be the next stadium that might decide it would like a some some investment from from local local authorities i mean as again as tom said can you imagine harrogate council putting that much money into in, in, into to spurs new stadium not really but then again would you want to be the local authority that that let your team go um i can imagine that'd be hugely unpopular in in, in buffalo especially given there have been some rumors of not just relocation elsewhere in the us but taking more games to to toronto so it remains to be seen who will be the next locale to, to come under some pressure i know you mentioned that there's a, there's a sale of, 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 of denver i don't think i'm not suggesting you're saying that we're going to be a, a candidate for, for relocation but everyone has to be on their on, on their toes and uh i imagine the next conversation will be well if you don't help us out we might move to london well speaking of which the jacksonville jaguars confirming that they are going to play at wembley for another few seasons i think until 2024 um as nfl international series games return there and of course uh, Shad Khan the Jacksonville Jaguars owner not that long ago tried to buy Wembley Stadium outright so you know that's um that's a potential option I think the the, the idea of a London franchise is, is probably a, a fair old way off as yet but certainly certainly some of the uh, political gambits and machinations will will start anew I'm sure the contrast with the way things happen here when it comes to or when I say here I mean in Europe and, and primarily in European football it's demonstrated again by the fact that you have Manchester United currently uh, who do have American owners I think we're pretty happy with the stadium and the fact they didn't have to spend any money on it shall we say but are now getting to a point where that no longer looks viable and reports in the Athletic and elsewhere in the last couple of weeks about Manchester United's redevelopment plans there's various options that they're exploring uh, to modernise Old Trafford, which would be one of the big stadium projects here if it happened, and you know the the kind of the the ultimate option that is on the table is to is to knock it down and and start again. And whether they use some of the land around Old Trafford, as you said, 
in the way that NFL teams have done, where you build something immediately next door, and indeed the way that Tottenham Hotspur did, remains to be seen, or whether they think that there's enough they can do within the existing structure to update things also remains to be seen. Yeah, the Glazers haven't really invested in Old Trafford. I think it's probably about 15 years now when they built the quadrants. There's no denying that it's fallen uh, down the pecking order in terms of the in terms of the standards expected of a Premier League club. You look at the the other members of the, the well, the the big six have all either built new stadiums or or renovated. And I know it's not the most important thing to 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 fans, but it will have again, a knock-on effect both in terms of reputation and, and commercial revenues. And I think as part of the uh, the Super League fallout, there was a commitment to invest in, in, in the stadium and they're exploring those options. Whether it would be a full rebuild, I, I don't know. I don't, I, I could be understand why that would be attractive because you can move the move the stadium around you won't have that railway line next to next to one of one of the stands that has been a, a problem for any expansion in, in in recent years but the technology has improved to the point that you could build over the railway line you could uh, build a, another tier on the on on the uh, the Bobby Charlton stand so I can't imagine the glazers would risk further reputational damage on, on on their part by knocking down Old Trafford. I don't think people want want that because Old Trafford for all its faults uh, in terms of the, the bells and whistles is still quite a nice place to watch football. Um, I, I would say that, but uh, it's it's it, it needs updating. And I think even even the the uh, the fans who wouldn't be part of the prawn sandwich brigade would not, would think that perhaps the uh, the concourse needs a bit of bit of paint, and even though they've reduced the price of beer, that will only appease fans for 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 so long. But as you know, it's a completely different world to the ones that the uh, the Glazers will have inhabited in the NFL with Tampa Bay. I can't imagine there'll be any public public funding for for that project. But um, yeah, I think I think we'll see some sort of renovation. Whether we see a new stand, I don't know. I don't expect there to be a um, a full-scale reconstruction because part of the problem is that the Glazers still want that match day revenue. Yeah, Manchester United still generate a huge amount of match day revenue, so anything that would take even a part of the stadium out of commission wouldn't be welcomed. There, there are plans afoot. We'll see what happens. We will, and I have absolutely no idea where Man United would go if they had to knock down any or part of Old Trafford. It's not. It's not London. There's not a Wembley Stadium sitting on your doorstep. Um, insert joke about Southern Manchester United fans here. <laughs> Another note coming out of the NFL was uh, this pledge to try and address the lack of minority ownership um, across the league. We'll see what comes of that. Incidentally, a report from the uh, inaugural Race Representation Index, uh, which was uh, commissioned by the Sporting Equals Charity here in the UK, uh, found that 43% of national governing bodies were handed the lowest three available grades on that score, which is is a pretty startling um, state of affairs. Before we uh, leave the NFL aside completely, there was an intriguing report that came out on the day that we're recording about the fate of the NFL's mobile rights. Um, you know, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Apple in the context of the NFL and the suggestion from Brian Rolap that there might be some experimentation with the direct consumer products or an extension of the direct consumer products that already exist at the NFL. Yeah, so the NFL has many 
different rice packages. Only today they agreed a, an extension to their, their national digital radio rights with Westbrook One. And these are mobile rights. So these are different to the Sunday ticket rights, the different to the TV deals that NFL has with, with, with the various networks. And they have been offered by Yahoo and Verizon as a, a mobile product. And these have now they're coming to an end as being withdrawn from the market. And then what the suggestion is the NFL might keep them in-house and create an NFL Plus product that would combine these mobile streaming rights with other content, with podcasts, and charge fans a subscription. The other suggestion is that they could form part of a wider rights negotiation. Obviously, we, we discussed an NFL ticket with, with, with Apple and other people that are interested in it, in it. Perhaps it would form part of those discussions. The other discussion is that the NFL was exploring a sale of NFL media, which is its content arm. And then these could all become intertwined. The trend in the market has been more of a consolidation of rights. So a couple of years ago, the, the, the Premier League tried to sell its mobile highlights rights as a completely separate package. And I think they were won by uh, ESPN UK before they realized there wasn't really much they could do with them and they reverted back to the broadcasters. The NFL has so many different ways to get its content out there that achieve both reach and revenue. It could do it on its on it, on it on its own. Um, but I think the other the other thing to note is that these NFL rights, the mobile rights, are slightly out of sync with the rest of its broadcast rights. I think they expire a year earlier. So it, it might not be an ideal time to 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 sell them or to do its its own packaging on what it wants to do. But I think it's an interesting development. If it does go it alone, again, it could create its own ecosystem and then perhaps it could add, add value to someone else that wants its its Sunday ticket or its media rights. Okay, well, I'm sure we will find out a lot more about that as 2022 progresses. Um, time now to head under the radar. I've been I've been wondering, incidentally, whether under, is under the radar the right thing for this? Could we do something a little bit more uh, contextually appropriate? I don't know. We'll think about that as we go. But not a pressing matter. What is a pressing matter, Tom? Again, a pressing matter. I'm not sure anything's a pressing matter, but... <laughs> That sounds existential. I know, I know. Um, what I'd like to talk about is uh, is sport climbing. Uh, everyone's favourite new event from the Olympics uh, has done a big, big rights deal with Discovery in uh, in Europe. So pretty much all Discovery territories, as far as I'm aware, will now um, have live uh, live sport climbing uh, made available via Discovery Plus, Discovery's various linear channels, whichever ones that is in whichever country you're in. But I, I guess for me, this is interesting because it shows the the pathway for new emerging sports. I mean, sport climbing, something that I think people were drawn to at the Olympics. They like the look of it. Uh, and previously, sport climbing was available on the Olympic channel. And what it does do is actually it justifies the, OC, the IOC's decision to introduce that platform for those kind of emerging sports, which didn't have any broadcast um, like backing. Uh, and now it's got on to achieve what I imagine is a much more like commercially rewarding um, deal with Discovery. So as much as it's like I like to dig out the IOC for its various failings on myriad topics, I think in this on this occasion, it's done a pretty good job with sport climbing. I mean, maybe you could say that sport climbing's managed it itself, but uh, it's a nice transition. And I think it's a good reward for a sport, which clearly um, has, a, has a place in 2022. Well, I suppose the, the Olympic Channel production has, has created an image of, of what sport climbing can really look like at that level of, you know, televisual product. Um, but 
from the IOC perspective, you have other sports that it wants to court for future Olympics, particularly if it is going further with this, you know, Olympic park as Olympic venue thing that has encompassed stuff like, or may encompass stuff like sport climbing and uh, breaking and, and things like that for, uh, for Paris 2024. Um, and, and, you know, if that is something that it can show um, it can repeat on, then yeah, that, that's, that's an attractive, uh, an attractive pathway for some of those sports. And, I guess from Discovery's perspective and Eurosport's perspective, you know, it's a, it's another lifestyle sport with all the other kind of programming you can imagine around it of people climbing things that the three of us perhaps wouldn't, but <laughs> um, produces some pretty spectacular images into the bargain. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very Discovery uh, or Eurosport style purchase. It fits with what they currently have. Uh, you can see it slotting in in those nice little graphic representations that they have on discovery plus for their for their sports um and also it provides them with sort of an additional olympic sport that it can do a bit of storytelling around before paris 2024 very much so steve what's uh what's passed under the radar for you this week well i don't know how big a story this would be in in, in sports business circles but there's been a another sort of report as the future of ea sports fifa video game now, obviously, the, the the two are engaged in a not a dispute, but they're, they're, they're pondering the future of the relationship. It's been a very successful relationship for for both sides, but EA now has been said that it's considering the future of that relationship because it believes it can go go it alone. The license is up for renewal. FIFA want more money. EA want more freedom with with, with the license. Now, a report this week has suggested that EA plans to go it alone under the guise of uh, I think it's EA Sports Football Club. That would be the name of the game potentially from 2023. There will be a FIFA 23 at the end of this year with uh, both men's and women's World Cups included, a first for the series. So they're going to get everything out, try and include everything they can with the, with the final release. If this happened, this would be hugely significant. It would be breakup of a, a long-running successful partnership. And at a time when esports are increasingly important for all governing bodies as a way of driving uh, attention, encouraging youth participation. It's not going to be great if FIFA don't have an official video game to try and get that audience and it's going elsewhere. So I think it's one to watch. It's all it's all briefings and reports at the minute, um, but I think it's definitely definitely worth keeping your eye on. Yeah, and th- this is a this was a, a much debated one when the, the very earliest reports came out um, back in the autumn, I think it was. What's your view on this? Because EA Sports came in, they were the interlopers into a mostly kind of European publisher-led part of the of the video game marketplace, which was much, much smaller at the time. And EA Sports have had a, a lot to do with, um, of it, with achieving the kind of scale that it has done. They wanted the credibility of FIFA and it was the kind of, it was the almost the cheapest, but most effective license that they could get in, in that respect. It's been such a kind of symbiotic thing for... 25 years that people have kind of almost completely had not been thinking about it I think to an extent and potentially the two parties involved hadn't really either but FIFA apparently had wanted to explore other ideas in the digital space we might be hearing about some of those in in due course and and you know had wanted to carve out the kind of video game license away from some other digital licenses that maybe EA Sports wanted to uh, to investigate together you know, EA Sports is, has become the, maybe the most successful 
software, video game software is a live service company going with uh, its various projects like Ultimate Team and uh, and, and online gaming and, and all that stuff. Can you see this being something where EA just kind of carries on regardless, particularly if it retains the other the likeness licenses that it has with FIFA Pro and with the various clubs and stuff like that? Well, that, that's, that's very much it. So essentially the reason that this partnership was agreed was because EA being an American publisher felt it needed to have the, the game that came FIFA needed to have a license like they had with the NFL and the, and the NHL. And of course, there's no real analogous license in, in the soccer world. It's, there's no centralized body like the NFL or NHL. It's, it's very fragmented. And they, they originally wanted the World Cup 94 license, but that was held by another company. So that will go for FIFA. Now, the FIFA license was basically just the name. It doesn't include the player likenesses. It doesn't necessarily include the clubs. Those are held by uh, FIFA Pro and by the individual competitions. But it gave them recognition. It it became you know well known. The fact it had FIFA on the cover meant people knew it had the licenses, even though it wasn't included, included in that agreement. But I think there was a, a tipping point where the the power in that relationship um, shifted. Um, for many people, FIFA was a video game. It wasn't a governing body. And then sort of the, the beginning of the last decade, when the way that people started to play play FIFA changed. It was no longer about career mode. It was about FIFA Ultimate Team. It was about getting those packs. And, and, and you know, FIFA gradually became a live service game. So it became less less important. Sure, it was massively important to have real players and have real clubs, but that's not part of the FIFA license. And so for many people, FIFA became FIFA Ultimate Team. The branding has shifted. In terms of what happens, I still wouldn't be surprised to see them come to an agreement, perhaps not on the terms that, that, that FIFA would like, at least not financially. Perhaps there'll be more freedom in, in, in the license and EA might have more, more flexibility and, and so will FIFA. But I think it will be huge. Not it would be huge for video games, obviously, and I think it will be big for for in the sporting world as well. It does really um, appear to me that you know when you look at how EA have, have they've cleaned out the space. You know, Konami still has a game that exists. It had a, a not particularly successful relaunch last year, although we'll see how that develops um, in the course of time. But yeah, FIFA has has destroyed all before it that title and uh, the, the the process of, of starting again um, from FIFA the organization's perspective um, would would look to be an onerous one but we'll see what what occurs there the um, FIFA Congress incidentally is happening this week in Doha I think it's probably a little bit close to recording for us and and news could emerge from that that uh, that dates this podcast quite quickly but I think um, the alternatives to a two-year uh, or biennial World Cup, I should say, are being explored there this week, according to Reuters. My thing that I noticed, we talked about Apple a couple of weeks ago, and obviously all that everyone was talking about from the Oscars uh, was that Apple won uh, an Academy Award um, for Coda. Nothing else of, of any real note happening um, in Los Angeles on Sunday night. Um, but yeah, that... That I think we, we we talked a bit about their um, seriousness. There there may be change in uh, in in attitude towards original content and content spending, and that will perhaps reinforce and confirm some of those ambitions um, over the year ahead. Winning time. I don't know if anyone's been watching that, but 
I, I find that an interesting model or an interesting dynamic within um, the future of, of the sports industry and its relationship to content, the kind of fictionalized rights-led account. The fact that the Williams sisters as well, they were involved in an Oscar win on Sunday, executive producing King Richard and um, escapes me, the guy they got to play their dad. But anyway, I do think that there, there are unfolding dynamics in um, in, in how sport and original content um, interact over the next few years. Anything else to add, guys? I would just like to see some of those sport meets drama kind of pieces just do the sport a little bit better. Um, it's a kind of, uh, it's a bit of a, I don't know, maybe it's a bit of a tired old man complaint, but uh, I, yeah, I, I've just seen too many of these like incredible set piece sporting events happen, recreated in film, and it just looks rubbish. Just like they're, they're really good, they're really, really good at the drama side of it. And actually, I think that's one of the reasons why Drive to Survive works so well is because they don't have to do the sports side of it because the sports side of it is real. Uh, and then they just have to create the drama side of it. Whereas I haven't, I haven't yet seen the, the Lakers. You're telling me that the sports side in Drive to Survive is better than the Sylvester Stallone movie where he takes an Indy car in the race with with some young Tyro across the streets of whatever city they got clearance to film. <laughs> um, I might be, yeah. Whoa, uh, whoa, uh, whoa. But like, uh, <laughs> even I'm just thinking about like, um, like Dream Team on Sky. Like they just used to like recolor football matches, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and it's just like, come on, guys, we can do better than this. Like. Uh, I don't need to see some like Andy Ansar produced football match anymore. Um, we must be able to do better. And like maybe one that was quite good was Coach Carter. But yeah, just generally, this is a message to uh, to Hollywood, to Apple, to Amazon, to Netflix. If you're going to bother doing these sport um, these yeah these sports set pieces, just do them properly. Like I, I don't need to see something that's like maybe even like not even physically possible anymore. Just give me some realism. Uh, I don't know. Uh, find a better way of doing it. It's, it's yeah, it's 2022. Let's, let's, let's turn this around. There you go. Maybe, maybe um, a call to arms for all of those organizations that do AI clipping and all these solutions that we see at, uh, at sports bro events and beyond. Like, can you find a way of manipulating sports action to make it look a bit more convincing than dream team did in the late nineties? Steve, you look absolutely baffled. Baffled or disgusted, I'm not sure. My call would be for every series of Dream Team to be added to whatever streaming platform. Sky, if you're listening, you can, you can dig it out. And then I'd like a reboot. There have been more than 10 years worth of football storylines that you can steal and turn into something that one day could be as good as anything that Apple Plus can ever do. That's what I'm saying. But will it, will it match the drama of a sniper at Wembley Stadium for an FA Cup final. That was a dream team one, wasn't it? I mean, I can't wait to see what they would come up with. Anyway, I think, I feel like if anyone is still listening, they've probably heard enough. So um, that was that's probably going to do it for uh, for this week's podcast. If you do want some more sensible opinions and, and thoughts on the uh, future of sports content, uh, Peter Hutton, of course, appearing on the uh, big interview strand of this podcast earlier this week, the uh, Meta Director of Sports and Sports Partnerships. Um, that's worth listening to. We could do a Patreon if anyone wants to hear more opinions like the ones they've just had in the last four or five minutes, but 
Probably not. So I will say thank you once again to Steve McCaskill. Thank you very much. And to Tom Bassam. Thanks, Owen. Watch this space for the uh, the Dream Team Sports Pro podcast coming soon. <laughs> Thanks to all of you for listening and apologies for the uh, last couple of minutes. The Sports Pro podcast is published by Sports Pro Media and we'll be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye.